The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is made by The Spinoff, with help from Callahan Innovation. Here's your host, Simon Pound. What do the Evil Dead, Xena, Spartacus, and an immersive 80s extravaganza live theatre spectacular have in common? If you guessed Rob Tappet, you've got the chocolate fish. It's very exciting to today get a chance to chat to a person that's bought about a billion dollars of overseas investment to New Zealand, jobs, he's helped build an industry, careers and inspiration for the local film and TV industry. Which is no mean feat, especially when you're doing it on the other side of the world from his native America. That's the kind of extra challenge that Tappet has thrived in and had a track record of pulling off. And the latest of these is Pleasure Dome. To find out what that is and about the show business, Rob joins us now. G'day. Thank you, Simon. Hey, um, so should we go right back to the beginning there? Um, tell me about how you first got into film uh, and, you know, those, those first early really... Um, instrumental horror films that you made with Sam Raimi? Um, my interest in films started um, actually when I was in high school. Um, I had read a book at that time, The Exorcist, and I thought, wow, this would make a great movie and it would scare people. And that was kind of the first time I ever thought about films and that. And then I went off to college and didn't really think anything about it. And my roommate at that time, um, Ivan Raimi, his younger brother, Sam, made Super 8 movies. Sam eventually came up to school. He and I became friends. We made a movie at Michigan State University where we were in school with Ivan, Sam, and myself, and um, Bruce Campbell, a later partner, playing a small part in that. And we ran it on college campus. And it was a great experience because we sat in the audience, ran the projector, took the tickets, did everything. And through that experience, we, we learned a valuable lesson. We never want to bore the audience, and um, so we were probably our own harshest critics, and that was kind of our entrance into making dumb comedies and making things at college. Eventually, I said, Sam and Bruce, we should drop out of school and make a movie. We should make a horror film. We had never made um, anything in the horror business, so Sam made a small short in his film class about four minutes long. Then we made a 30-minute short called Within the Woods that if you're fast, you can find it on YouTube still um, before it gets taken down. <laughs> um, and then we used that to raise money to go off and make our first picture called Book of the Dead, which was later retitled by a sales uh, film salesman to Evil Dead. So um, that was kind of our journey into that. We never thought after that that we would ever go back and make another horror film. We went off and made a movie that the Cone Brothers co-wrote at that time called Crime Wave. We had met Joel and Ethan. Uh, they were editors and uh, a brother on 
um, Evil Dead. And through that process, we ended up having to go back to make a sequel to Evil Dead because Crime Wave was just an absolute disaster on every level. That is so cool that you, um, from the beginning, were interested in kind of serving the audience that much. Uh, was that kind of the, um, I guess, the kind of showmanship or something? What brought you into film? Um, it's certainly part of it because now I'm at a point in my life that I'm able to look back on what have I done, what do I like, what has been effective. And so um, we were never in the art film or that kind of business. We were always in we want to provide this level of entertainment. And um, I call it an adrenaline kick. Uh, certainly um, everything I've kind of been involved with and even the TV that we've done over the years has always had some sort of kick to it that um, is not a procedural. Um, and the kind of people that you came up with, I mean, that's amazing to have uh, been involved with the Coen brothers and Sam Raimi. I mean, would would your life have um, gone down the film route if you hadn't, um, you, you know, kicked off with such a great group of people? It's interesting when you look back at your life and go, well, what if I hadn't met this person? Or what if I hadn't come to New Zealand? I would never have met my wife. So there's so many of those kind of uh, only by divine provenance, so to speak, um, did that come to be? But obviously that was a road I was meant meant to be on um, in, in some fashion. So um, I have no idea. My girlfriend who dumped me when I was making uh, going off to make Evil Dead because um, she couldn't see the film business, she went off, became a lawyer, um, and then gave that all up in order to become a writer of um, what I would call bodice rippers. So, um, uh, so... I think people look for some creative outlet in their life, and um, I can't see what mine would have been if I hadn't go, uh, gone into this, but I certainly would have been looking for something, I'm sure. And what led you to New Zealand? What, what made you think, I'll tell you what, I'm going to try and do the hardest thing in the world, which is making these huge TV productions at the other end of the world? New Zealand was one of those flukes. Um, we had gotten an order to do five Hercules movies, and um, we knew that we needed to go down under to be shooting from November until May, these five Hercules movies, and um, we were going to look in Australia, do a location shoot down, or like location scout down there, and the guy who was working with me at that time, um, literally, they had their uh, flight booked, and I ran into a guy who I knew a little bit in the parking lot where I worked at that time, Universal Pictures, and I said, oh, Courtney, where have you been? And he says, oh, I've been in New Zealand doing Mrs. Piggle Wiggle's Theater. It's an <laughs> undiscovered production treasure. And we went, hmm, you know what? The first line in what we've written is Green Rolling Hills. And um, said, oh, Eric, go down and look there first and bring back some pictures, and never looked any further. And so Hercules came down, we did the, the five movies in a series, and Xena spun off on that. And um, uh, and then I was fortunate enough to meet a Kiwi woman, like living down here, have a house. And then as once those TV shows came to an end, um, and I'm, Sam and I kind of reconnected it back into the horror business, I was able to bring a constant stream of movies down here 
um, that allowed me to and my family to continue to have the great New Zealand lifestyle. Let's look at how you helped to build up that industry because uh, I imagine when you first came with those Hercules movies, um, maybe the infrastructure wouldn't have been exactly as you would require. What did it take to get the industry up to speed and how hard is it to keep it up to speed? It was interesting. When we first came to New Zealand, the studio I was working for had had a bad experience shooting something in New Zealand called Tommy Knockers. And they were worried that there wasn't the infrastructure and they had just shot the piano down here. And we were able to say, hey, we're going to have many of the same people that were on the piano. I said, oh, I'm going to hire these guys who worked on Nightmare on Elm Street and that. And they came down here and Grant Major and some of these people who were came on to Hercules early on were able to support the hotshot Americans <laughs> in working in, in this system. And so um, they quickly realized that there was an infrastructure, and as long as it was properly financed and as long as people were given the resources to do something, that they could do what anybody could do. And then Herc and Zena, we trained up a tremendous amount of people. Once Lord of the Rings got started, a tremendous amount of those people left to go work with Peter mm. on Lord of the Rings, and we trained up another batch of people. Then Lord of the Rings ended, Herc and Zena ended, and there was a quiet period here and some of those people drifted into other industries and the same thing happened at the end of Spartacus um, about 2012 there was about a two to three year drought of production in Auckland anyways and when we started again we did have to retrain people in key areas who had because so many people had left the industry so um, I think that the government now um, with its grant programs and that and the amount of local industry keeps um, uh, a production pool that's relatively deep. It's so cool to think that uh, the work of Hercules helped to build the foundation that allowed uh, Peter Jackson's films and, and, and work to be so strong. And I guess between that, Power Rangers, and uh, what, what you guys do, that, that must be the whole kind of um, industry pretty much. Well, we're not the whole industry. There's certainly in Auckland, there's always been SPP, and they have been a great training ground for people. And certainly there's a whole Wellington contingency of people. Um, in time, I think there'll be a Queenstown. There's quite a few people that live there, not an entire crew. But um, there isn't the proper infrastructure down there to support production, even though it keeps going there. So um, for us here in Auckland... Um, you can have two or three things shooting at the same time. This past year has been that. There was three or four projects, and very few Australians had to come in. <laughs> um, what, what, does it, what does it take to be a producer? What does a producer's role uh, entail? One of the keys, I mean, there are so many different definitions of what a producer is. Perhaps the most successful producer I know is... Um, is a guy that we partnered with on some horror projects over time, and he's actually just an aggregator of rights. So he goes out and gets the rights to the American remake of The Grudge or The Ring or The Departed. And um, I remember standing with this guy and him turning to me, he says, I just got the rights to make a Lego movie. I said, Roy, that's the worst idea I ever heard. A Lego movie? He said, oh, it'll be great. Well, he was gone off and made $2 billion on that, 
told me six years ago, oh, I got the rights to make it. I went, oh, it was kind of a bad production. I didn't like it. Well, Roy had another glorious weekend. So he, he's been very successful without being a hands-on guy, but seeing long-term trim, tra- trends of, as to what people like and what has value, what are the brands, what's, what's new, what's a new way to present something. I think my particular skill is has some of that. Well, where are we? What do people want to see? How are we going to entertain them? But I'm perhaps a bit more hands-on because one of my jobs is to get a group of people around me, make sure all the guns are pointed outward, as I say, <laughs> make sure all the horses are pulling in the same direction, and then create an environment that these people who are incredibly skilled and incredibly good at what they do can do what they do. And I think part of the success that I've had over the years is making that environment that allows people to excel at their job while still having people working with me and for me who can watch the nuts and bolts. Mm -hmm. So um, it is a business. Um, The good thing for me, for all the shows I've done down here, only once have we gone over budget and... um, Studios like to know that they can count on people not to go over budget, and so um, uh, and I give that uh, props to the people that work for me to say, hey, you're in this kind of thing, you can't do that, and so yeah. How do you do? You kind of um, switch gears from the kind of impossible dream stage that you have to have to kind of make a production out of nothing and sell it and get financing and and get people to kind of come with you on the mission. Do you then have to switch gears into the tracking every line on a budget and making sure that things go to the kind of precision that a great film shoot goes to? Because I've looked at so many budgets over the years, I can actually look at them pretty quickly and go, oh, this is too much, this is wrong, this is, oh, we're going to be okay here. So um, uh, I always want to be a dreamer and go, uh, this is would be really great to do. How do we accomplish it with an not go off the page, so to speak. And if we're going to go off the page here, how can we take it from elsewhere? And um, that balancing act over time uh, has worked well, but um, it, it is a little bit of a skill, but you do have to be a bit of a dreamer and hope everything's going to fall into place. There's something so cool about production in that even the most practical of people, and film you know, really does bring out you know, people, very can-do, practical uh, people. No one will ever say no on a film set. If someone says, that mountain's in the wrong place, no one says, well, nah, that's just how it is. They say, how much money and how much time do we have and we'll move the mountain for you? And it's, it's such a kind of optimistic and exciting area. It is, you know, um, yes, it's a dreamer's business and it's a um, anything-is-possible business. We all hear those stories about moving the mountain and um, do this, do that, and you go, ooh, did they really need to do that? Was that the best use of their limited resources or somebody else's? But, um, you know, it's hard, that artistic line as to you are trying to do something artistic that is goes beyond nuts and bolts and widgets. So, um, uh, yeah, I can't say on somebody else's shoot that they were wrong to say that the mountain needs to go there. I would just now say, oh, we'll just paint it out and post and move it over there. So, There's a great um, line about being a producer where someone was saying, what does a producer do? Well, a producer does whatever has to be done. And uh, that, that's a really cool way to, to look at it, isn't it? Like, um, 
tell, tell me about that in the context of the, the Pleasure Dome journey, because this is something that, an idea that you've uh, been shaping and moving for years across many iterations, isn't it? Uh, the Pleasure Dome, I'm getting close to the end of this leg of the journey. So I'm um, going all the way back to Xena in 2000, my assistant at that time left uh, from, uh, from L.A. to work in New York, and he ended up dancing in something called The Donkey Show, which was a Midsummer Night's Dream done to disco music that was happening in, like, underground clubs and bars and that. So he said, hey, Rob, you should come out and see it. It's really cool. So I went out and saw it and went, oh, this is really cool. This is a new type of entertainment. How can I bring this into TV? So, because um, that's what I knew, and I tried, and... We actually licensed the rights to it, and then the music proved too difficult to get. The disco music has a certain problem to it about um, licensing it in perpetuity. And then a couple years later, a guy here, um, Mark Beasley, who had gone to see the Donkey Show with me, um, I said, Marco, I met with these theater owners. They really want to do something that's a new midnight movie. And he and I talked about it for a while because we had said, hey, that Donkey Show, we should make an 80s kind of thing and do this and Mark took off and wrote a script that was really great called The Pleasure Dome and it was a new midnight movie but by that time theater owners who wanted that as a movie now wanted something totally different they wanted Sunday morning Christian programming we went, uh, <laughs> that's not what we're delivering so um so I tried numerous times with Broadway producers and Las Vegas producers and got very close I couldn't keep the pieces I wanted, Mark Beasley, myself, Lucy Lawless, a couple of other things, all intact in order to get it made. And um, finally, Mark drifted off to do something, and I drifted off, and it kept coming together. A local producer, Matt, Matt Caffin, came to me a few years back and said, what's your passion project that never got made? I gave him the script. He said, oh, I can get it made. I'll get it financed through this, this. He went to the film commission. Dave Gibson and those guys stepped up and... Um, European financiers came in, was at a lunch with Mark Beasley and that, and they started talking about, well, can't have Lucy, but we, Jesse Jay's kind of interested. And Mark went, um, I've made this movie in my head, and it was perfect. And unfortunately, Jesse Jay wasn't in that, so I'm not involved. And he stepped away, and he called me that night and said, look, I'm sorry, and you, always, you should go and do it with Mark, with Michael, uh, as a play, that's really what it always wants to be. And I thought about it for a couple of days, and then I thought that entertainment and that energy that I want to deliver to the audience in a new experience actually is better as a theatrical experience, a live event, because it's part concert, part bar, part story, and it takes all of those and melds them into kind of a new entertainment. It's circ with a, a great story and with great music. And so... I went, well, why have I fought it all this time? I keep saying I'm not in theater. I'm not doing this. And so I started down that road, and all the obstacles slowly just fell away, and it became a very um, straightforward um, production with all the hiccups any production has. But I realized as that started that, oh, this is what this wants to be, and now we're going to be opening, and that first leg of this journey's over. Tell us what the... Um you know, what can someone expect from Pleasure Dome? What, is it, what makes it different than a musical or a uh, theatre show? 
At its heart, Pleasure Dome is a very simple musical, like any musical. Person meets person, fall, fall in love, doesn't work out, they go this way, they try to get back together. Unhappy ending, happy ending, anyways. So it's, it, it is a musical format, um, but set in a nightclub, set with a good story, a well-written story, in a place and time. And then what we've actually done is brought in all the different uh, immersive aspects to theater. So we don't have painted backdrops. We're a big thing in the round with our own version of Groundlings. Um, it's a big venue. It's a something that invites the audience to be participate in. It's got a lot of dancers. It's got big um, projection images. And what's been a very exciting for me as a producer, there's a whole group of people out of New Zealand who lived here once upon a time who have now gone away. So we're working with some of the world's best lighting and sound technicians who have gone off and made a fortune working in Macau, doing lighting designs for casinos in Gastonbury and working for Cirque du Soleil. And it just so happens that they were all able to come together and bring their talents to Pleasure Dome. And, um, and once again, it's been a very good environment. It's not like they're, Michael Hurst, who is directing it, has this great idea of, oh, every light should be like this. So people have been allowed to bring their expertise and not have to fight a system that wants them to do it differently. So um, in terms of what is the audience going to get, hopefully they're going to get the best entertainment experience they've gotten from going to live theater ever. And it's in the it's in the 80s, and you've licensed some pretty amazing songs. Like, I guess one of the things with a musical is, until you know the songs, you can't sing along. But if you already know the songs, you could come and be part of it from the first day. That was really the beauty of when we saw the donkey show, which I'm going to go back. We saw something and said, oh, that's a good idea. Now we're going to do our version of it. And that's kind of what happened. I realized with Xena, I saw a Hong Kong movie and went, ooh, there's a woman, strong woman hero, anti-hero. I'm going to make that in Greek mythology. And the same thing with this, that German idea twisted it differently. Mark twisted it. I twisted what he did. And... But what was always a staple in that is we wanted the drama to be told through our favorite songs, some of our favorite songs of the 80s, so that everything we knew was used even in a better way than, than uh, the audience was used to. Rather than just hearing that song on the radio and going, I like that song, oh, those words really mean something. It meant something to Sappho, it meant it to Lilith, it meant it to Remy. So all of these point of views in the play over different pieces of music. And so... Um, the good thing on, in this show is most of the songs we wanted, we got a couple of them that we wanted, uh, and were denied. Um, Lucy being an activist, um, was able to write to people and say why she thought this play was as important now as it was a decade ago and will always be important and it needs to be said. And, um, some of those top artists, um, Annie Lennox and Bruce Springsteen responded to, they're not going to make any money, a thousand bucks maybe, but, but to, it was important that the message be continued um, to this day. That's so cool. So they, they took her messages and then brought the songs back into the, the they, production. They allowed us, it, what was denied was no longer denied. <laughs> That's so cool. And um, 
you, the way that you've pulled it together as well, like the um, we just went for a walk through the the staging, and you've got this immersive experience from when people walk in. That I don't want to. I'll, I'll leave to you to to uh, say as much as you'd like to about that if there's any surprises. But then inside the actual um, staging of the play, uh, the theatre space, you've got the audience pits where people are standing and interacting, and it kind of reminds me of the Globe Theatre, like very kind of traditional way of getting people right into the action. And that was what they were doing in uh, Shakespeare's time. The audiences would be yelling along, singing along, um, having fun. Going back to the the spark for this, that's what this the Donkey Show did. It invited people in. We went, oh, we that's really important. And our favorite music is the perfect vehicle to allow the audience to come into this play. And suddenly they'll be going, oh, I had never really thought about what that was saying. And there are some songs that are not as um, well-known, but that were very famous club songs in the late 70s, early 80s in Paradise Garage and some of these, uh, the Saint different clubs in New York that were dance clubs, kind of havens that people went to where they could dance and uh, do whatever. Most of them didn't even serve alcohol, otherwise they would have lost their liquor license. So they were gay clubs that eventually people, um, straight people gravitated to because it was cool to be there and cool to be seen there. So um, so we've kind of recreated a street in New York City that the audience gets to go down, get to have a totally immersive experience, then come into the club and spend an evening being entertained. If you want to be one of the groundlings, you can be right up against the stage, and I'm going to... Um, I was given tickets to go see Adele, and I said, ooh, I'm really busy, and I'm not a huge Adele fan. So I gave them to my assistant and another person who worked in the office, and they came back and go, oh, thank you. They were the greatest tickets ever. We had to stand, but we were right in front of the stage. We were standing against the stage and resting on it as Adele was one foot away from us. And went, ah, that's so important to have the audience and the performer in the same space, and there's no orchestra pit or nothing in the way. So that's part of the design of this and in, in the round experience is that there really are no bad seats and uh, the performers are in front of you and behind you. So you're totally surrounded by the evening's performance. And what are your hopes for the production? Like, um, is this something of a Rocky horror picture show kind of feeling where um, it could run and run or have you got plans to take it overseas? It feels very international. One of the things that um, the only reason really to have made this and to commit the resources and that everyone is committing the resources that they have in their time and love and energy is that the show travels. It's um, a one-off here because I had an empty warehouse um, that, um, that the lease expires on in January, so we were able to stage this right now here. But the show itself... Um, my our plans have always been to see where it's going to go whether it's going to go to melbourne or sydney or tokyo um there are huge markets besides broadway for musicals um a man who was going to finance the movie once upon a time he had done hairspray and rent and a bunch of huge shows on broadway and he always told me he said this isn't a movie you should be on um in vegas with this so um so the hope is is that it ends up um, in Vegas. Um, 
And if with history as a guide, of all the projects I've ever made in New Zealand, almost 800 hours of TV and six movies, five movies, none of them have actually been overperformed in New Zealand. They've all done well in the rest of the world. So um, this is what you would call a developmental theater season. We're going to work out some of the bugs. Um, not that I expect that there's going to be many, but you'd be a fool not to learn something along the road. So, um, and then the next incarnation of this will will incorporate whatever we've learned here. Pulling something off of this kind of scale and, you know, a number of the things you've done, do you ever kind of look at the world you're making when you're in the thick of it and wonder if, wonder if you're crazy? Like, is it, does it, do you feel like there's all just so much happening or have you learned to kind of ride the, ride the wave of it? To be honest, I have freak out moments. I've had a few on this because unlike, um, a lot of other entertainment, uh, enterprises I've been involved with, um, I do have money in this, as they would say, which is um, defying producer rule number one. Um, But equally, uh, a man I know who's now dead told me as he was getting old and dying, he said, I sure wish I had taken more risk in life. He died with $500 million. And I went, you know what? That's an important thing to constantly be pushing yourself because I'm now at a point in my career where I could say, I'm going to go fishing the rest of my life or I'm going to do this. But, um, but it's that risk that keeps you excited about doing something. And, um, in this case, finding a new way to entertain audiences. So we've had movies and TV, they're all getting pirated. It's all shared. It's all this, at least the new immersive experience it can't be pirated yet, so people have to come to you and you get to have that giant collective experience and um, hopefully the audience leaves all the better for it. Do you have any kind of rules of how you do business? And I, I guess I'm asking this because I saw on the walk through Michael Hurst, who you've worked with for years as a collaborator, and you have a number of people that you, you know, whole crews that you work with over years and years over productions and productions, and uh, also Charlie, um, who... Uh, you know, as someone that you're obviously helping to bring up to this um, scale of production and the like. Yeah, do, do you have any kind of like rules of business and how you work with people? Um, going back to part of my job is to create an environment that people can flourish in. People actually kind of like that by and large. There are some over the years that you have to kick out and go, you don't play well, well with others. You're a toxic personality. You need to go away. So, which is often unfortunate, but... Um, uh, so I've tried to shed those people over time. Um, but yes, the people that, um, I have worked with for 20 years, we all seem to get along. Um, I've learned not necessarily to be great friends outside work, to have a separate circle of friends, often nothing to do even with showbiz, but those people that you work with day in and day out that you can count on and treat fair and, uh, let them have their creative expression, keep those people close and, uh, Michael's a great example. He's has his own life, does his own thing, but, um, he certainly has directed a lot for us. Um, starred in Hercules, um, was in all the good episodes. <laughs> so. And do you have, um, a motto or words you live by or things you say to yourself when things get hard? I wish that I had a simple motto, but everything has to, uh, 
have its own response, the correct response in that moment. Um, I have children, and um, one of the things, I have a boy who is incredibly gifted at some things and has very specific mechanical processing disabilities, but he has the perseverance that much more so than I do. And I never have to worry about him because if you persevere in the film industry, eventually everyone I know who's done that has landed somewhere. And I periodically speak at schools and I tell them perseverance is one thing and collect a group of people. You don't need, not like-minded people, but a different group of people around you so that when you're down or you don't know this, you can turn to them. So you need some sort of partners to help you all push a project together and they each bring something unique and hopefully you get people that you like and trust and um, are smarter than you are and uh, equally honest. And if you have that, you can really do anything. So cool. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today, Rob. Thank you, Simon. Thank you very much. That's so cool. That's uh, Rob Tabbitt, the executive producer of Pleasure Dome, uh, which um, you'll have to come and see. It's just uh, one click up uh, the Northwestern Motorway in Partiki Road off uh, Rosebank Road. So, um, yeah, and it's looking fantastic. Thank you, Jose Barbosa, for producing, and thank you for listening. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by the spin-off and Callahan Innovation. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.